So on behalf of myself and Dr. Dahl, um, thank you for inviting us to present today. Uh, today we'll be looking at some of the challenges faced by IBD patients who are women of childbearing age. So the way we're going to do this is kind of go through one case over time and have different challenges along the way. So we're going to talk about Emma, who's a 25-year-old female with ileocolonic Crohn's. She's on infliximab and methotrexate. She recently had a colonoscopy that showed she was in endoscopic remission. Now she's feeling well, but she's having some more diarrhea and abdominal pain around the time of her period, and she's concerned that this may be another flare. So we know that women with inflammatory bowel disease do often experience flare-like symptoms around the time of their menses. So this can be diarrhea or abdominal pain, and that even changes in their menstrual cycle and flow duration can occur preceding the diagnosis of inflammatory bowel disease. Often these do become more regular as um, the course goes on. Hormonal contraception can provide some relief to these flare-like symptoms, but in these patients who are already at risk for VTEs, obviously the oral contraception puts them at an increased risk. So Emma wonders how often she needs cervical cancer screening and should she get the, e, the HPV vaccine. So the gynecological college, as well as the CDC and the ACG, together recommend clinical guidelines for annual cervical cancer screening for all women on chronic immunosuppression. So while some patients um, who are not on immunosuppression may be able to get away with every three years um, cervical cancer screening, in these patients, annual screening would need to continue. And there was a Danish study in 2015 that looked at both ulcerative colitis patients and Crohn's patients and found in the colitis patients, they were at increased risk for both low and high-grade dysplasia. And for the Crohn's patients, they were at risk for low and high-grade dysplasia as well as for cervical cancer. So in our population of women age 9 to 26, we recommend the HPV vaccine. And for all these reasons, this is all the more important for these patients. And I'll pass it to them. So we'll then move on. Two years later, Emma and her partner are planning a pregnancy. She's concerned about the impact of her disease and the medication on a future baby. Since she's in remission, she's wondering, could she just stop everything and, and perhaps she could stay well? However, uh, we know that active disease during pregnancy has the highest risk of low birth weight and small for gestational age neonates. This is data um, from meta-analysis done of several studies um, looking at low birth weight and small for gestational age babies. There have, um, it's been a little bit confusing looking at studies because a lot of them look at medications and we don't know about the effect of medications versus disease activity and, and thus this meta-analysis was undertaken. And the top forest plot there, we're looking at um, small for gestational age and there's four studies and then at the very bottom we can see the diamond meta-analysis of the four studies and we can see that the risk ratio is higher for small for gestational age babies. Looking at the forest plot on the bottom at low birth weight, similarly, the meta-analysis of four studies also um, comes out with a higher risk ratio for low birth weight. 
it's as high as two um, in this meta-analysis. That was sort of driven by one study that had a very high risk of low birth weight. And even if that one's taken out, it's about 1.8. So it's really important, I think, to stress to women that though they're concerned about medications, and actually some studies have actually shown that they're they're not asking us necessarily. They're asking their neighbor or their friend or the internet or um, maybe no one. And um, they're really concerned about their medications. They really need to be concerned about their disease activity and being in remission because we know that that's really what's increasing their risks. So what about our medication safety? Um, This chart is sort of a summary of some of the medications I think we're more familiar with and we're more familiar with talking about their safety in pregnancy. To go sort of from the top, um, balsalazide, low risk, can continue. Mesalamine is generally low risk. There's been a study looking at dibutyl phthalate in the uh, pill capsule coating of acetyl HD, which is teratogenic in very high doses in animal studies. Because there are so many alternatives available, it's reasonable to switch from acetyl HD to an alternative therapy at a comparable dose. For sulfasalazine, it's low risk. However, you really have to be aware that they need to be on high-dose folic acid, two grams daily, if they're going to continue it. In men um, who have a partner that they wish uh, and they wish to become pregnant, they should also switch. It is associated with azospermia. Methotrexate is teratogenic. Um, It should be stopped three to six months before consumption. Azathioprine or 6-MP, there have been several registry studies that we won't review here, but it's thought to be low risk as a monotherapy. You can continue it. However, um, we don't recommend starting it in pregnancy as you don't know who is going to develop an adverse effect, who's going to be the one with bone marrow suppression or pancreatitis or another adverse effect. So continue it if they're well on maintenance dosing, but don't start it. It's also slow acting. So in the sort of course of a pregnancy, it wouldn't be the first thing you'd reach for. However, in combination therapy, there is some data that there may be an increased infection risk for the baby. So if they have an adequate level and they've been in a stable remission, you can consider um, thinking about stopping um, the combination. However, this is a risk-benefit. You need to think about how stable the remission is, how you've been able to achieve um, adequate drug levels. Budesonide, there's a very small study in IBD looking at it, but there's also asthma data looking at budesonide, and it suggests that it's low risk. It's okay to use if needed. Prednisone, I think we're familiar with sort of older data looking at cleft palate deformities. There have actually been larger, I believe it's a Danish study, looking at a larger population, which has not borne that risk out, but there's many other risks, gestational diabetes, premature rupture of membranes, preterm birth, infant infection. So you can use it if needed, but as always, we try to avoid steroids if we can. So what about TNF therapy and and how do we dose it and, and how do we adjust it or do we adjust it? Um, this is a Danish cohort study looking at TNF therapy in the third trimester. And it was sort of looking at if patients continue it throughout versus those that stopped it early. On average, those that continued in the study continued till about 32 weeks um, for infliximab. And for adalimumab, they stopped it about uh, five to six weeks um, before delivery. You can see sort of at the top um, of the chart there are the women that... Um, had disease activity during pregnancy, and sort of at the bottom there are those without disease activity. 
those that were exposed to anti-TNF therapy during the third trimester versus those that stopped it earlier, there was not a statistically significant difference um, in their outcomes in terms of preterm birth or low birth weight. However, it does sort of recapitulate the earlier point that really disease activity itself um, was associated with those outcomes. So thus suggesting safety um, and continuing it. Betalizumab safety in pregnancy. So this is data that I think is, is still emerging, and we still have relatively small numbers in um, the studies looking at this. There's been an animal study in monkeys that suggested safety. This is at um, super therapeutic doses, much higher than what we use in our human patients. Um, recently, there was a prospective study done in Israel that was recently reported um, 21 patients are exposed to vetalizumab throughout pregnancy. So this is um, one of the largest groups that's been reported that actually continued it um, through pregnancy. Many others sort of um, had variation in the number of people that stopped it at various points. Um, they compared it to 83 patients on anti-TNFs and 196 not on a biologic. They found that the gestational age at birth was similar. The neonatal weight was appropriate for age. And all had five-minute APGAR scores greater than eight. Six pregnancies in the vetalizumab group had early pregnancy loss between six to 12 weeks, three of which had active disease. Two were in a 45-year-old patient that had both active disease and had gone through IVF. One was a patient in remission. Um, so at this point, there's limited data from small numbers, but suggests safety and continuing during pregnancy. What about ustekinumab? Um, animal studies, again, have not raised concerns about teratogenicity or developmental effects. No congenital abnormalities have been reported, again, amongst the case reports. And then there's also large um, registry data from psoriasis, though, um, as Dr. Cohen pointed out, they use lower dosing than we do. Um, transplacental transfer appears similar. Um, to infliximum adalimumab, ustekinumab is also an IgG1 antibody, so we'd expect similar transport. So what about biologic dosing in pregnancy? Emma's now pregnant. She's gained about 15 pounds so far. And since they ask her her weight before every one of her infliximab doses, she's wondering if she should be getting a higher dose each time. Should they be adjusting it as her weight goes up? And what should she do about her last dose before delivery? So um, in this study, they actually looked at levels throughout pregnancy. They looked at both infliximab levels and adalimumab levels. You can see um, in the chart on your left that the infliximab concentration actually increases um, by each trimester. So there is some thought, you know, do you need to increase it? They, they point out in the study that, you know, infliximab has a relatively small volume of distribution because it's, very, it's a high molecular weight um, drug, and it's also very hydrophilic. So though weight is going up and total blood plasma is going up, the actual, um, that infliximab actually does not need to be increased. And the, the levels are going up, so you can actually consider checking a level to sort of guide your dosing. Adalimumab, however, stay, seems to stay stable uh, throughout pregnancy. There's not yet a good mechanistic explanation for why this is. We know that with sub-Q delivery of a drug, it's not 100% bioavailable like an IV-dosed drug like infliximab. It's about 50 to 100% bioavailable. And the question is, in pregnancy, is there sort of increased degradation at the injection site? Is it because women are shifting where they inject it? They're shifting from their belly to their leg in many cases. And is that somehow, you know, would you naturally see a rise, but because of changes in sort of how the medication is degraded, perhaps. It's speculation. No one really knows why, um, but um, this was sort of the first study to show us this pattern. 
So we do know that biologics are efficiently transported by the placenta, as I mentioned. The uh, monoclonals are IgG1 antibodies, and there is an FCN receptor on the placenta that actively transports these antibodies across the placenta to the infant. Um, and so we know that there's active transport in the third trimester, and, and studies of cord blood have shown us that there's actually higher levels in the baby at birth than in the mother because of this transport. And drug has been detected up to six months of age. There have been other studies that have shown that perhaps it can even um, it be present up to a year. So th- what about third trimester biologic dosing? I think that this really does need to be individualized. It's, it's always a consideration of risk and benefits because sort of the first point was that having the disease activity controlled and being in a stable remission is really one of our first and most important goals. So you need to keep that in mind and um, sort of keep that as the first priority and assess that risk benefit. However, if they are in a stable remission with infliximab, you can continue dosing up until about 8 to 10 weeks, you can consider doing one dose at that point. You can consider checking the level in, at the second trimester because they are having those rising drug levels and sort of assess, you know, when um, a dose would be necessary. Adalimumab and golimumab, you can continue until about 4 to 6 weeks. This is, I mean, this is all sort of in the realm of expert opinion and, and um, you know, when levels are available, you can consider that to guide you. Sertilizumab, since it is um, an antibody fragment um, and the levels found in babies are very, very low, you can continue it as scheduled. Betalizumab, we reviewed the data that's available on that, and so at this point, we'd recommend continuing it to maintain remission until about 8 to 10 weeks before delivery. And for ustekinumab, likewise, we're continuing it um, the same way. So um, I will then move on back to Amanda for considerations in the infant. Okay, so Emma delivers her healthy baby boy and wants to know if she can continue to breastfeed while on infliximab. And she also wants to know if her baby will respond to immunizations and if there's any that he must avoid. So we already talked about the piano registry a little. So this is a pregnancy registry, also looking at neonatal outcomes for over 10 years, and several publications have come from this. Uh, This chart here looks at drug levels in the breast milk, and you can see there is detectable infliximab level in the breast milk. However, there was no difference in growth, milestone achievements, or infection rates to patients uh, infants who had been exposed to infliximab or those who had not. In terms of the methotrexate that she was on initially, uh, there was one case report that looked at patients on high-dose methotrexate in the form of chemotherapy, which is higher than we would be using, and because of that, guidelines do recommend avoiding methotrexate. So her next question was about vaccines. And this shows that the biologic exposure did not affect the response to vaccine to haemophilus or to tetanus. Of course, anyone on biologic therapy should be avoiding live vaccines. So in the child, um, for the first six months to a year, uh, they suggest avoiding live vaccines, which um, for this course of uh, vaccinations would really just be the rubella. So in summary, we talked about menstrual cycle and alterations with inflammatory bowel disease symptoms there, uh, yearly cervical cancer screening for immunosuppressed patients, and that essentially most medications can be maintained through pregnancy and breastfeeding despite a few caveats. And for vaccination schedules other than live vaccines, they should continue and respond appropriately.